So this morning, again driving over the hill as I do in the morning, this morning there was the fog. And it was very interesting because um, it made me think of how my mind is sometimes. <laughs> Just driving, you know, because I could only see about um, you know, maybe 40 feet in front of me. It was quite thick coming over the hill. And and it was really, yeah, this is how it is sometimes. I can't really see a whole lot. <laughs> and my mind is really foggy and, and very dull and very gray. <laughs> it looks like that sometimes. And I noticed, too, how um, I had to actually be a little bit more mindful. And I could feel that how I had to bring up the energy to be more mindful. It was very interesting, given what we're exp- how we're practicing here. I could really feel the factors. I could feel the quality of, of how, when I wasn't able to see so well, the, the white line along the road, I had to actually increase my energy so I could see more clearly. And it was interesting just to, to notice that I was, I was driving along and then driving a little further, and then the fog started to lesson cleared a little bit more and just like just like our mind you know and sometimes sometimes it's it's completely clear and the and the and the 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 sky is very bright and and light and sunny and it's like that sometimes so um i thought maybe you'd be able to relate to that <laughs> right I always think of Heather's uh, talk on the cycles, uh, cycles of practice, which I enjoyed so much because really that's what it is. All these changing mind states. <clears throat> but tonight, I, I, um, I want to go on a, a little journey into the time of the Buddha. And I want to do that through one of the Buddha's discourses um, so that we could hear in some ways more directly from the Buddha and the way the teachings uh, came to us uh, in, the, in the text, in the scriptures. And um, just a little background. Um, uh, in my early days of practice, the kind of the early 80s, I was practicing primarily with Joseph Goldstein and Jack Hornfield out here in California when we would invite them out to uh, teach and I would help along with uh, James Bears and some other people to organize those retreats. And I, uh, I had, hadn't really traveled to Asia, so for those early years I only heard the teachings from Joseph and, and Jack, really, and a, and a few other teachers. And so... I, I kind of associated the teachings with Joseph and Jack. You know, I mean, I knew, I knew that they were teaching the, the Buddhist teachings, but, you know, it wasn't really, the, they weren't reading from the, the text or from the scriptures. It was just Joseph and Jack. And, <laughs> and, and, and there was a point at which I started to become a little bit curious about, what did the Buddha really teach? Are they teaching what the Buddha taught? You know, and um, in the early in those early days, there really wasn't a uh, a good translation of the Pali Canon of these discourses of the Buddha, 
and um, and there there were just this one very small volume from Asia that was not so interesting to read. It was it was quite dry. The, the the translation wasn't so good. It was it's pretty repetitious, and I wasn't really interested in reading it, although it was suggested to read it. But in 1995, um, Bhikkhu Bodhi and Bhikkhu Nyanamoli uh, came out with a beautiful translation of this of the first book of, of teaching collections of teachings was the Majjhima Nikaya, which means the middle length sayings. And there were about 152. There's 152 uh, discourses in that book, and it was really enticing. I thought, okay, now I can, now I can really sit down and uh, take some time with what the, what's, what was, what's in the, in the original discourses. And so I, I decided to take a retreat, a six-week retreat at Guy House in England. And I said, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read the 152 discourses and really study them and practice, really see if I could practice what's in these, in these teachings. And it was, it was so, which a really, really wonderful experience because it was kind of like, oh, this, the Buddha said this. This wasn't Jack. This wasn't Jack who said this. It was the Buddha who said this. <laughs> you know, it wasn't Joseph. It was the Buddha, you know. And it was so, it was such a, a great um, revelation, really, because um, of some, so many of the things I associated with uh, Jack and Joseph. And then I could go and say, you know, the Buddha said that. <laughs> and I could, I could say it with some authority after reading the text. So, um, and then there was some, I took a lot of notes while I was doing the study, and then somebody enjoyed the notes, and they wanted to publish the notes, so it actually got put into a collection called uh, Pressing Out Pure Honey. So some of you might be aware of that. It's actually online now, and I'll, I can let you know at the, when we, at the end of the retreat how to access that. But it's a, kind of the cliff notes, you know, the, 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 short, the short version of the of the of this of the Majjhima Nikaya, an easy way to get in. So, in reading uh, all those those uh, discourses, there th- there was one in particular that um, I wanted to share with you this evening because I, it's just such a wonderful story, and I, I felt very inspired by the story, and um, and it takes us on a little bit of a journey to the time of the Buddha and gives us a sense of that historical time as well. And, um, and, and really, in some ways, the, the level of devotion when there was actually a Buddha walking on this earth. I mean, sometimes I think about that, you know, that the, when the Buddha was alive and people were actually getting teachings from the Buddha, <laughs> You know, that's, a, that's, that's pretty exciting to, to think about. And so this story is um, one of those, those uh, experiences where this person, uh, this monk, Pukasati, met, this, met the Buddha. So um, I think we know that after the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya in India and attained... Uh, enlightenment and attained awakening, or sometimes called the deathless, Um, he was healthy enough and well enough to walk 
the earth or walk in India for another 45 years. For 45 years he was able to, to teach. And he um, really would teach anyone who would listen to him, basically. And, and from July to October in India is the rainy season. And the Buddha remained at a fixed residence because the monsoon made travel so impossible. But the rest of the year, he did wander through the Ganges Valley and he was giving teachings wherever he could. But he mostly traveled with a large retinue of monks. Um, But sometimes when there was a special case, he would travel alone. And this is a story about one of the times he he thought it was a special case and he was traveling alone. And it's a story about this monk named Pukasati uh, who was formerly a king, uh, King Takasila. And uh, King Takasila was a friend of King Bimbisara. And so if some of you know the story, uh, King Bimbisara was uh, a a really um, a, a great man. And he took teachings from the Buddha. He, he was very devoted to the Buddha and um, became uh, enlightened. He woke up under the teachings of the, uh, the Buddha's discipline. And because of that, he became one of his main beneficiaries. And he actually gave him a huge uh, area of land to do his practice for his retinue of monks to practice. It was called the Bamboo Grove. And the Buddha would, would do his uh, rain, uh, rainy season practice there many, many, many years. So, so Pugasati was a friend of, of uh, Bim, uh, King Bimbisara. And uh, King Bimbisara sent Pugasati a golden plate inscribed when he was still king, when Pukasati was uh, still king, he sent him a golden plate that was inscribed with the three refuges and various aspects of the Dharma. And it's said that when the king, uh, uh, Takasila, read the plate, read what was written on the plate, he got very, very inspired. He was filled with joy and he decided to um, renounce and go into the homelessness renounce the world. And when he did, he didn't take formal ordination, but he did shave his head and put on yellow robes and and went out into homelessness. So Pukasati was on his way to join a meeting with the Buddha in Rajgir, northern northern India. But when he arrived, he, he found out that the Buddha was actually in another place, Shavasti, about 300 miles north of, of Rajgir, is near Limbini. And in, so in the meantime, Pukasati decided he would stay and wait, and he was at the potter's, uh, potter, potter's workshop in Rajgir. But while he was there, the Buddha arrived in Rajgir, and he also went to the potter's shop. Da-da, da-da. <laughs> but he wasn't recognized. Uh, as the Buddha, and um, and so uh, when Pukasati met him, he just called him friend. He didn't he didn't know who he was. But this is this is from the Sutta. So uh, the Buddha arrives in Rajgir, and he says, 
if it's not inconvenient for you, he says to the, to the uh, person who had the potter shop, Bhagava, I will stay one night in your workshop. It is not inconvenient for me, venerable sir, but there is a homeless one already staying here. If he agrees, then stay as long as you like, venerable sir. Remember, they didn't know he was the Buddha. And so um, then the, the Blessed One went over to uh, Pukasati and said to him, if it's not inconvenient for you, Bhikkhu, I will stay one night in the workshop. And, and then he said, Pukasati said, the potter's workshop is large enough, friend. That's when he just called him friend. He didn't recognize him. And it said, there's an explanation for why uh, Pukasati didn't recognize the Buddha. And that interpretation is this. He says the, that the Buddha had seen Pukasati with his clairvoyant knowledge. And he knew he was ripe for awakening. So he traveled alone on foot to meet him. And he had the power to change his appearance and look like an ordinary monk. Now, some of you might know that the Buddha uh, had, they say he had 32 marks, right, that recognized him as the Buddha. Um, there were some things like he had a thousand spoke Dharma wheel on his feet. He had toes and fingers that were finely webbed. He had a golden-hued body and a jaw like a lion. These are just a couple. <laughs> He had a 10-foot aura around him. <laughs> and he had a fleshy uh, uh, protuberance on top of his head, you know, the top knot. And, and so that's how you, the Buddha was recognized. But, <laughs> but apparently he was able to change that so he wasn't recognized. And then apparently there were 80 minor characteristics as well when you read them, and they're, they're very... Uh, it, it does make you wonder about sort of some of this mythology, you know. So, so the Buddha entered the workshop with permission, and then he prepared a spread of grass on one end, sat down and crossed his legs, and set his body erect. And he established mindfulness in front of him, and spent the night seated in meditation. And so did Pukasati. And then again from the sutta. Then the Blessed One thought, this clansman conducts himself in a way that inspires confidence. Suppose I were to question him. So he asked the Venerable Pukasati, under whom have you gone forth, Bhikkhu? Who is your teacher? Whose Dhamma do you profess? And Pukasati said, friend, there is a recluse Gotama, the son of the Sakyans. Now a good report that a blessed Gota, that blessed Gotatama, Gota, Gotama has been has been spread. That blessed one is accomplished, fully enlightened, perfect in true knowledge and conduct, sublime, knower of worlds, incomparable leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of gods and humans, enlightened, blessed. I have gone forth under that blessed one. That blessed one is my teacher. I profess the Dhamma of that Blessed One. You know, so it's very beautiful when, you, when I just sort of imagine that scenario 
where Pukasati is expressing all this real devotion to the Blessed One and really wants to meet him but doesn't know that he's right there, right in the right talking to to this 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 enlightened one. So the the Buddha says, but Bhikkhu, where is that blessed one? <laughs> where is he, this accomplished and fully enlightened? Where is he living? And uh, Pukasati said, there is, there is, friend, a city in, in the northern country named Shravati. The blessed one, accomplished and fully enlightened, is now living there. And then the Buddha says, but Bhikkhu, have you ever seen the Blessed One before? Would you recognize him if you saw him? No, friend, I have never seen that Blessed One before, nor would I recognize him if I saw him. Then the Blessed One thought, this clansman has gone forth from the home life into homelessness under me. Suppose I were to teach him the Dharma. So the Blessed One addressed the Venerable Pukasati thus, Bhikkhu, I will teach you the Dharma. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. And he says, yes, friend. And the Blessed One said this. Now, in a way, doesn't that get your attention? It's like the Buddha knew that this monk was really ripe for the teachings. And he knew that he had this this opportunity right now to offer something that would really make a difference. What was he going to teach him? <laughs> right? It, it, for me, it, it, it put me a little bit on the edge of my seat. Right? It's like, oh, <laughs> this, is a really po- this is a real poignant moment. Right? So, um, this is what the Buddha taught. And I think it's pretty turbocharged, <laughs> personally. So, so um, you know, I'm going to read from from the sutta the teaching that he gave, and um, um, you'll hear many themes. Uh, the ones we are actually exploring here, you'll 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 hear that. Yeah, the Buddha taught this. This isn't. Uh, Heather and uh, Sharda and <laughs> Arena Donald or this is the Buddha and for me that's so that's so inspiring. You'll hear themes of anicca, anatta, not self, a disenchantment. He goes into vedana, the feeling tone, and seeing the rising and passing away of these feelings, and then by releasing. Any form of clinging, how agitation drops away, how the dukkha drops away, and then how equanimity remains when the clinging disappears, and finally into the destruction of all suffering, and then entering into nirvana, the deathless. He gives him the whole, <laughs> the whole path. It's very, very beautiful. And so, so I'd like to um, read from the text what he says, because it's not going to be unfamiliar. It's very familiar. These are the teachings that we have been given, given to you, and also the teachings that you've been hearing along the journey of your own practice. And so that's partly why I wanted to offer it, so we can kind of contextualize what, are, what we're actually doing here. 
into this, this particular body of teachings. So he organizes his teaching uh, uh, with four foundations, but it's not, a f- not four foundations we've heard before. So these, these four foundations, uh, the first one, the foundation of wisdom, foundation of truth, the foundation of uh, relinquishment or letting go, and the foundation of peace. The foundation of wisdom is based on the knowledge of the destruction of all suffering. That's the wisdom. The foundation of truth is a truth that is unshakable, which is the uh, realization of Nibbana or the deathless. The The third one, the foundation of relinquishment is the letting go of all attachments. This is like not just a few, you know, like all. (laughs) The fourth is the foundation of peace. And it's really the pacification of greed, hatred, and delusion, the uprooting of those uh, uh, defilements in the mind. So why are these important? He says, when one stands upon these foundations, the tides of conceiving no longer sweep over one. They are then called the sage at peace. What does Buddha mean by the tides of conceiving no longer sweeping? Conceiving, this word conceiving, conceptualizing, this is really what we've been putting so much emphasis on here on the retreat. This, this, this tendency to, to form mental images and then cling to them or get caught up in them, the tendency to conceptualize, create concepts, uh, frameworks, uh, ideas, fantasizing, getting lost in our imagination. These are the conceivings. This is the, the way the mind uh, creates these uh, formations and then we, get, we walk into them and believe that it's the true reality. So he says, when we rest on these, stand on these four foundations, the tides of conceiving no longer sweep over them. So he's really looking very directly at this particular uh, process of what happens for us that we can see in our own practice. So he starts with the first foundation. How does one not neglect wisdom? And he starts teaching on the six elements, the four elements and two more elements, uh, which point to the not-self nature of the body, of the mind, and of consciousness. So now from the sutta. And I want to say that if there's, you know, any point at which it just starts to feel a little... um, you feel a little bit lost with it, you know, just l- let it sweep by. It's sort of like, you, it's part of the foundation of letting go, uh, letting go of attachment. It's like you don't really need to have the words if it's not landing well for you. So just letting it, letting it just go by and, 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 and feeling into letting resonate what resonates for you and what doesn't, let it go. That's the practice. Right? 
So the Buddha starts. How does one not neglect wisdom? There are these six elements. The earth element, the water element, the fire element, the air element, the space element, and the consciousness element. What bhikkhu is the earth element? Now remember, he's, this is the teaching he's giving to Pukasati. The earth element may be either internal or external. What is the internal earth element? Whatever internally belonging to oneself is solid, solidified, and clung to, that is head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestines, (laughs) small intestines, contents of the stomach, feces, or whatever else is internally belonging to oneself is solid, solidified, or clung to. That is the internal earth element. Now, on each of these elements, this is a teaching really on the 32 parts of the body. And some of you have maybe had that teaching where you actually go through all these 32 parts. These were only the earth element parts. And you start to visualize them, uh, a sense into them, and not cling to them as me, mine, or I. Right? And that's what the Buddha says right here. He says, uh, now both the internal earth element and the external earth element are simply the earth element. And that should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom. Thus, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. When one sees it thus as it actually is with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with the earth element. Right? So, so he goes through all the, all the six elements this way. He says, what, what bhikkhu is the water element? The water element may be either internal or external. What is the internal water element? Whatever internally belonging to oneself is watery, water, or clung to, that is bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, urine, right? (laughs) Or whatever else internally belonging to oneself is water, watery. This is called the internal water element. Now both the internal water element and the external water element are simply the water element. And that should be seen as it actually is. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. When one sees it thus as it actually is with proper wisdom, one becomes disenchanted with the water element. What is the fire element? The fire element may be either internal or external. What is the internal fire element? Whatever internally belonging to oneself is fire, fiery, clung to. That is, that by which one is heated that by which one is eaten, drunk, what we eat, what we drink, uh, chew, consumed, and and tasted, gets completely digested. That is the fire, fiery element. And, And then whatever else, he says, but these are simply, this is simply the fire element, and it should be seen. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. The air element internal or external, 
What is the air element? Upgoing winds, downgoing winds, winds in the belly, winds in the bowels, winds that course through the limbs, the in-breath, the out-breath. Whatever is air, airy, this is the internal air element. This should be seen with wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. What is the space element? It may be either internal or external. What is the internal space element? Whatever internally is space, spatial, that is, holes of the ears, the nostrils, the door of the mouth, uh, that aperture by which what is eaten, drunk, consumed, and tasted that gets swallowed, and where it collects, and whereby it is excreted from below, this is space, the space element, simply the space element, and that should be seen as it is with proper wisdom. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And then he says, what is the consciousness element? It's one of the, in this, in this teaching, one of the six elements. He says, what is the consciousness element, purified and bright? What does one cognize? What, what, what does one know with consciousness? One cognizes, one knows that this is pleasant. This is painful. This is neither pleasant or unpleasant. In dependence on contact to be felt as pleasant, there arises a pleasant feeling. When one feels a pleasant feeling, one understands, I feel a pleasant feeling. See, it's, this, it's, it's so simple right here. One understands with the cessation of that contact to be felt as pleasant, the pleasant feeling that arose in dependence on that contact ceases and subsides. So when the contact disappears, so does the feeling. Like when you hear the sound of the bell, which we hear many, many times in the day, there's contact with the bell which produces a sound. And that sound generally is pleasant, especially at the end of a sitting when you're not doing very well and you're sitting, right? You're having a lot of pain and struggle and you hear that bell, whoa, that is so pleasant, right? And yet as that sound dissipates, so does the pleasant feeling, right? So he's just talking about the arising and the passing of that here, the dependent arising dependent nature. With a painful feeling, he understands, I feel a painful feeling. And with the cessation of that contact, the painful feeling that arose ceases and subsides. And he talks about it as the neutral, also the neutral feeling, the neither, the pain, neither painful nor, nor pleasant. And with the cessation of that contact, the neutral feeling that arose ceases and subsides. And he uses this simile. He says, uh, Bhikkhu, 
uh, just as from the contact and friction of two fire sticks, he says, just as the, the con- from the contact and friction of two fire sticks, heat is generated and fire is produced. And with the separation and disjunction of those two fire sticks, the corresponding heat ceases and subsides. Right? So he's really wanting us to get a sense of this, the feeling tone, in this case the Vedna, that arises and passes depending on the contact through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the taste, the, the mind or even contact with the mind of thought or images. It arises, a thought arises, a pleasant feeling may arise, and on that, when that contact diminishes, so does the feeling. He says, when um, uh, seeing this with wisdom, then there remains only equanimity, purified and bright, malleable, wieldly, radiant, and then uses this beautiful uh, simile that uh, I, I, we may have heard different times. He says, suppose Bhikkhu, a skilled goldsmith or his apprentice were to prepare a furnace, heat up the crucible, take some gold with tongs and put it into the crucible. From time to time he would blow on it. From time to time he would sprinkle water over it. From time to time he would just look on it. That gold would become refined, well-refined, completely refined, faultless, rid of dross, malleable, wieldly, radiant. Then whatever kind of ornament he wished to make from it, whether a golden chain or earrings or a necklace or a golden garland, it would serve his purpose. So too, Biko, then there remains only equanimity, purified, bright, malleable, wieldy, radiant. So, so when we're not attaching, when we're not clinging, when we're not getting caught up in the formations, but just see contact, feeling, arising, passing, just what it is, then there's this equanimity that is able to uh, to meet whatever is there without the reactivity, without the disturbance that we so often uh, feel in our in our mind. And then he he goes on to say that um, if we were to then start to direct this equanimity to some of the more subtle planes, the subtle experiences, and um, uh, that this would still be uh, uh, a conditioned experience, it would still be something that we're, we're, we're wanting to bring into manifestation. It's, it's, it's some, it, there still might be some clinging in that. And this is where he's starting to talk about these subtle ex- uh, concentration experiences. Like even that, those two come and go. Not to have any craving for any kind of creation. Not to have attachment to anything. So he's really, really talking about that with the, with the equanimity. Not to get, not to start to think that now that we're equanimous, we can go into, you know, these more subtle states and have these different kinds of experiences and, and then something's 
really happening, right? Like not, not even then. He says, he says, they do not form any condition or generate any volition, any intention tending towards either being, creating, or non-being, try to get, trying to get something to go away, this greed and aversion. Since he does not form any condition or generate any volition tending towards either being or non-being, he does not cling to anything in this world. When he does not cling to anything in this world, he is not agitated. When she is not agitated, she personally attains nibbana. This this cool nibbana means cool. It's a cool cooling of the fires of the passions, or we call it the deathless. The deathless, that which does not is not born, does not pass away. When she is not, when when she understands this. Birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more coming to any state of being. This is a stock phrase in the, in the text. You hear it again and again. What had to be done has been done. Right? The, that's the end, that's the end of the path. And then he goes on, he says, if, if, if she feels a pleasant feeling, she understands it is impermanent. There is no holding to it. There is no delight in it. If she feels a painful feeling, she understands it is impermanent. There is no holding to it. There is no delight in it. If he feels a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he understands it is impermanent. There is no holding to it. There is no delight in it. He says, Bhikkhu, just as an oil lamp burns in dependence on oil and a wick, and when the oil and wick are used up, it, if it does not get any more fuel, it, it is extinguished from lack of fuel. That and, and all that is felt not being delighted in will become cool right there. Just become cool. And the cooling means the cooling of the, of the clinging, of the attaching of the desire to, to make something happen or to not want something to happen, the, the aversive mind. So, 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 so just this, this cooling, this, this equanimity, of the cooling of the, of the grasping in the mind. And I really, for me, I've given a lot of reflection to this um, example of, of the fuel because when I'm, when I'm actually feeding, I mean, we use this word, when I'm feeding the mind, when I'm getting caught up in my thoughts, when I'm dwelling in my thoughts, when I'm really making something out of them, it's fuel. It's like fuel on the fire and it keeps burning. It's not cool. It's not getting cool. And the emotions get, they get strong and the emotions burn. And so when we remove the fuel, we stop feeding our minds in that way, feeding the conceptions, feeding the conceivings, we can start to relax into this equanimity. Therefore, a bhikkhu possessing this wisdom possesses the supreme foundation of wisdom, 
for this bhikkhu is the supreme noble wisdom, namely the knowledge of the destruction of all suffering. So, so I'm, I'm hoping as I read this, you're getting a sense of the practice that we're doing here that is so profound and so rich. Then he goes to the second foundation. What does it mean to preserve truth? His deliverance being founded upon truth is unshakable, for that is false speaker which has a deceptive nature, and that is true which has an undeceptive nature, which is Nibbana, the deathless. And then the third foundation, what does it mean to cultivate this relinquishment, this letting go? He says, formerly when he was ignorant, he acquired and developed attachments. Now he has abandoned them, cut off, cut them off at the root, made them like a palm stump, done away with them so they are no longer subject to future arising. Therefore, a bhikkhu possessing this relinquishment, this letting go, possesses the supreme foundation of relinquishment. For this bhikkhu is the supreme noble relinquishment, namely the relinquishment of all attachments. This letting go, letting go. And the fourth foundation, what does it mean to train in peace? Formally, when he was ignorant, or let's say she, because there's a lot of he's here, formally, when he was ignorant, when she was ignorant, she experienced covetousness, desire, and lust. Now she has abandoned them, cut them off at the root. Formerly, when she was ignorant, she experienced anger, ill will, and hate. And now she has abandoned them, cut them off at the root. Formerly, when she was ignorant, she experienced ignorance and delusion. Now has abandoned them, cut them off at the root so they are no longer subject to future arising. Therefore, a bhikkhu or a practitioner, we use those also interchangeably, a practitioner possessing this peace possesses the supreme foundation of peace, for this bhikkhu is the supreme noble peace, namely the pacification of lust, hate, and delusion. So it was with this reference to this that it was said one should not neglect wisdom, the first foundation, should preserve truth, the second foundation, should cultivate relinquishment or letting go, the third foundation, and should train for peace. The tides of conceiving do not sweep over one who stands upon these foundations. And when the tides of conceiving no longer sweep over them, they are called the sage at peace. And his last little teaching, little teaching. (laughs) Bhikkhu, I am is a conceiving. I am this is a conceiving. I shall be is a conceiving. I shall not be is a conceiving. Conceiving is a dart. By overcoming all conceivings, one is called a sage at peace. And the sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die. He is not shaken, 
and is not agitated. For there is nothing present in them by which they might be born. There's no more fuel. There's no more fuel for becoming. The fuel has been burned out. Not being born, how could one age? Not aging, how could one die? Not dying, how could one be shaken? Not being shaken, why would one be agitated? Dukkha. So it was with this reference to this that it was said, the tides of conceivings do not sweep over one who stands upon these foundations. And when the tides of conceiving no longer sweep over one, they are called the sage at peace. Now, Venerable Pukasati's jaw was on the floor. (laughs) He says, Indeed, the teacher, the teacher has come to me. The sublime one has come to me. The fully enlightened one has come to me. And then he rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over his one shoulder and prostrated himself with his head at the feet of the Blessed One. You can imagine, right? Here he was, this was his whole life's purpose, was to meet the Buddha and to receive the teachings. And then he says, Pukasati says, Venerable Sir, a transgression overcame me in that like a fool, confused and blundering, I presumed to address the Blessed One as friend. Venerable Sir, may the Blessed One forgive my transgressions, seen as such for the sake of restraint in the future. <laughs> He's just feeling so uh, much remorse for his uh, lack of respect. And... Um, uh, the, Buddha, the Buddha says, Venerable Sir, uh, uh, he says, uh, surely, Bhikkhu, uh, surely, Bhikkhu, a transgression overcame you in that like a fool, confused and blundering, you presume to address me as a friend. But th- that's what the suttas do. They do this kind of repetition. But since you see your transgression as such and make amends in accordance with the Dhamma, we forgive you. <laughs> For it is growth in the noble one's discipline when one sees one's transgression as such, makes amends in accordance with the Dhamma, and undertakes restraint in the future. And then Pukasati says, Venerable Sir, I would, re- I would receive the full admission under the Blessed One. And he says, But are your bowl, Buddha says, Are your bowl and robes complete, Bhikkhu? And Bukasati says, Venerable Sir, Sir, my bowl and robes are not complete. And and the Buddha says, well, Bhikkhu, I'm sorry, but the Tathakatas do not give the full admission to anyone whose bowl and robes are not complete. So then Venerable Pukasati, having delighted and rejoiced in the Blessed One's words, rose from his seat And after paying homage to the Blessed One, keeping him on his right, he departed in order to search for a bowl and for robes. And then while the Venerable Pukasati was searching for a bowl and robes, a stray cow killed him. 
So. <laughs> so he he didn't get full ordination. <laughs> But apparently he got something else because it said after some time had passed and a number of bhikkhus went to the Blessed One and after paying homage to him they sat down on one side and told him, Venerable Sir, the clansman Bukasati, who was given brief, brief instructions by the Blessed One has died. What is his destination? What is his future course? And, and the Buddha said this, he said, because the clansman Pukasati was wise. He practiced in accordance with the Dhamma and did not trouble me in the interpretation of the Dhamma. With the destruction of the five lower fetters, the clansman Pukasati has reappeared spontaneously in the pure abodes and will attain final Nibbana there without ever returning from that world. This is what the Blessed One said, and the bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So that's quite a journey, huh? <laughs> so I don't think we have to be con- too concerned about Pukasati having, having uh, uh, sat at the feet of the Buddha, getting uh, direct transmission in that way. But here we have the transmission, right? These teachings that were written down 300, 500 years after the time of the Buddha, this oral transmission that happened for all those years so that we could receive the teachings in such a pure way. And here we are, 25 hundred years later, sitting here. Sitting here, we can say, at the feet of the Buddha, because the Buddha is here. This is the living Buddha right here, practicing in the way that we're practicing, paying homage in the way that we're paying homage, the devotion to the practice, the commitment to the practice, what you've, what you've gone through these last weeks, some seven weeks, some three weeks. I mean, tremendous effort and commitment, struggles, joys. Something, something is living through us. We're in touch with something that asks us to stay here and keep looking at our minds and our hearts in this, this way with such vigilance and, and care and love and respect, devotion. So here we are. It's, it's, it's here. It's all right here. It's, it's, in a way, there's no time, right? We can't even say really that that happened in the past or something's going to happen in the future. We're, we're in the living experience of it right now. And, and perhaps everything is here right now, the past, the present, the future, all manifesting in this moment. 
And perhaps we have access to all that ever was and all that ever will be right now. As we continue to open our minds and our hearts, expand, become more accessible, more available to that which is waiting for us, really. So I I hope you enjoyed going on this journey with me, with us together, into this time of the Buddha, this historical time, getting a feel, getting a flavor for the way the teachings have been handed down, for the teachings that we are practicing here, it's all all there in that in that discourse. That's why I wanted to offer it because it's all there, really. Everything that we've been doing here together, so we can see see how it how it holds together. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you, and please enjoy these uh, cool night hours, and have another sitting at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.